You're listening to the Automotive Analyst Series, a podcast by Red Blue Capital. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson, and along with my partner, Olaf Sackers, we're interviewing the researchers behind the buy, sell, and hold calls that drive the news cycle. Each episode, we're opening up the floor to an analyst that covers our space and looking for a broader, behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. For highlights, show notes, and to find more episodes of this and other Red Blue Capital podcasts, visit us online at news.red.blue. In this episode, we speak with Arndt Ellinghorst, whose 25-year career in European autos capped off with him being recognized as Europe's top auto analyst. He's long been an expert source on Volkswagen, Daimler, and BMW. And when he switched industries last year, the Financial Times published what could almost be called a eulogy, where the FT's Joe Miller described Arndt's departure from research as leaving deadline-bound journalists bereft of a source. Arndt talked with us back in London a few weeks ago about the research industry and how it's changed, how US, European, and Japanese markets differ, the role of shareholder activism in transforming companies in the automotive sector, and his views of the biggest risks and opportunities for car makers in Europe in particular. And towards the end, a little something special as well. He's a bit of a car racer, and we dive into his history of racing vintage Porsches at Le Mans. Arndt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know European autos like almost nobody else does, right? I think, you know, having worked in the industry, so after uni I uh, wrote my diploma thesis at Audi, and then I got the chance to um, work at Volkswagen in a junior management role. So I have a foundation and a passion for that industry, and that got me into research. And then I've been following these companies for you know, a long time through different cycles, through different, you know, company crises and big changes and management changes. And, um, you know, I've always enjoyed it because I think it's a fascinating industry. It's global. Everything macro has an impact on autos and on share prices. Probably the second half of my career, the whole tech disruption started. And then most recently, tech converged into automotive and cause this massive excitement. So I think it's a fascinating industry and following these companies uh, over the years has been very interesting and I've learned a lot. How do you see the changes that are coming or that have already played out? I mean, I think a lot has happened over the last five or so years uh, in the industry. How do you think, to focus specifically on, on German OEMs and suppliers, how do you think they've fared through this period? But I think the problem really is that the industry was always used to be on the front foot and they were shaping innovation through their value chain, driven by tier one suppliers and then moving towards the OEM and the premium. Vorsprung durch Technik, right? Exactly, Vorsprung durch Technik. But the OEM was pretty much in charge and that's something that has changed. So even you know German premium makers don't necessarily own the narrative anymore. The narrative of innovation and future mobility is owned by, you know, different companies now. And whether that's, you know, established businesses now like Tesla or, you know, Neo or startups in autonomous driving, in electric. So that and, and that you can see in the valuation of these companies, which, uh, you know, multiples have dropped by 60% roughly. And that came from a very low basis. So Many of these, you know, even the best German OEMs, their value to go out of business in three to four years. So the enterprise value to free cash flow stands at three or four times 
which is terrible. But the key reason is they've lost the narrative of uh, innovation. I think we kind of jumped right into some of the big questions, but you gleaned over your background. My impression is that some of the reasons the executive teams at these German automakers and you had such a close relationship was you came from the auto world. You briefly told us a little bit about what you were doing after uni, but can you tell us your journey into research? And you're actually also the first person on the series who's now no longer in research today. Maybe tell us a little bit about your career path into and out of equity research. Yeah. So after I've graduated, as I said, I wrote a diploma thesis at Audi that got me into Volkswagen. And I spent about two years at Volkswagen in a junior management program, which was fascinating. Then I got the opportunity to work for a German, well, pan-European investment bank as a junior analyst covering automotive and machinery stocks. And from there on, I um, you know, got the chance to run a team at another pan-European investment bank, Dresdner Kleinwood at that time, in Frankfurt and London, which was very successful and we became the top-ranked team in Europe. And then Credit Suisse asked me to rebuild their automotive franchise. So we moved to London about 15 years ago. Our first son was born and that went very well. So we became the top-ranked team again uh, under the CS batch. I then br- briefly helped to run the European research product overall. And then I got a call from Ed Hyman, the founder of ISI, and an all-star economist on Wall Street, because Ed had developed an amazing independent research business in the US, and he wanted to globalize. So he asked me to build out his European business, uh, which was sort of a startup situation. And we moved together with the Odo team into a small office in the city, and then we, you know, hired more people. And that was fantastic. It was a fantastic challenge to see whether my, you know, research had the same impact at a, you know, very unknown brand in Europe. And it really worked well. So I was very grateful that clients really wanted to talk to me and the corporate still wanted to be connected. We then sold the business to Evercore. So that's created Evercore ISI. And I've spent seven years running the European Evercore ISI equities business. When you think about things you've covered, have you felt like the things you've written have influenced management in specific ways? Well, it's it, it's usually the bigger topics, right? And the topics that have a really longer shelf life, where you keep pounding the table on something and it keeps coming back. One example would be, I've probably been the most outspoken person for years that Daimler should spin off the trucks business. And it took 10 years. And then, you know, it happened. At, at the time, we discussed it, we talked about it, and we kept coming back. It was probably not the right window for the company because there were other things going on. And then there was a demerger with Chrysler. And then Mercedes needed a bigger fix. And then there was macro pressures. But the industrial logic was always very, very clear in my eyes. So when it finally happened, I felt like, well, this is actually something that we've pushed, that we've discussed, where we brought fundamental arguments to the table and we analyzed it and we came to a conclusion. So that that was an example where I felt we had an impact. And there were various other situations. For instance, you know, at some stage, we were very unhappy with the pricing of one of the German premium makers in the US in particular, right? We analyzed the data, we had huge discussions with them, and it was like, no, the data is wrong, you look at it the wrong way. But ultimately, it was the right call. And they made some changes, and things have improved. So I do honestly believe if an analyst can present data in a fundamental case, 
on something that's really relevant and important, that we can have a major impact on decision taking. But people need to be careful, right? The analysis needs to be good. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be fair. It needs to be presented in a good way. And I think then it's, it's really worth engaging with the analyst. The fascinating thing is analysts have access to these boardrooms, right? And if they're smart and good and respectful, then they can really have an impact. And there are not many jobs where you can have that exposure and influence. So I always found that extremely fascinating, motivating, and it was really basically what kept me going. Because you mentioned mid-cap companies that want coverage, and they want coverage just so that people trade their stocks. But I feel like even the high-profile companies like you know VW, BMW, Daimler, those companies benefit from, I think, an engaged analyst community and a broad conversation because analysts are also in constant conversation with investors. They're kind of bridging that the, the investor side with the company side. And I think there's like a really interesting function that happens, especially at this current moment in the cycle where we're shifting from something that's purely cyclical and kind of predictable where management is more just executing to something that's much more secular and, and you need imagination to kind of think about where things are headed and, and what's possible. And so having other people to be part of that conversation seems quite valuable. I think of like Toyota, for instance, or Japanese autos as almost more kind of isolated in terms of coverage because I think there's even less coverage uh, of them than Europeans. But I feel like that's something that's really positive for the U.S. market, that there's a robust conversation and, and active research. Yeah, and, and I would say the that American corporates are more open to listen to their shareholders, to the capital market, to analysts, and to filter some of the, the input and use it um, to reflect their strategies or to drive a certain change within the organization to bring in an independent voice to help them implement their plans. You can use analysts or, and investors to accelerate transformation, and smart companies do that pretty effectively. The Europeans have opened up uh, substantially to that. So the capital markets view is becoming increasingly part of the discussion on a management board and also supervisory board in Europe. I think that's very interesting. And I think that's actually very helpful. I don't think that's happening to the same extent in Japan. Culturally, I think there are just different mentalities and potentially barriers. Who are the institutional buyers in Japan and how much trading volume is there? Or is it very little? Is it just people own companies and they're long-term shareholders? It's almost like private markets. They're not even really looking to buy and sell. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very long-only dominated and very consolidated market. And hence, there's less volume in the Japanese market. And also because of language barriers, it's just not that easy to follow, you know, Japanese companies because of their disclosure. So that makes U.S. and European companies easier to access. You were talking about the differences between just how much deal activity happens in the U.S. And I think that the dynamism makes sense at a macro scale, right? You see like the, the Twitter takeover and just how much discussion around that is happening and very few deals like that you can imagine happening in Europe. But getting specific, I don't know if you can rattle off statistics, but how much more consolidation activity is happening in the US on like a, on a given quarter, you know, in the auto sector, how many more proxy battles are happening among smaller suppliers and hedge funds that are, you know, taking out massive short positions and putting pressures in the versus what's happening in Europe? Look, the, the activism of investors is much more developed in the US 
than it is in Europe. Also, I would say that European companies are more protected than US companies. Hedge funds in many European countries are heavily regulated. So you have a much more hedge fund activity in the US. And there's generally more, you know, the debt of companies trades publicly in the US, whereas in Europe, it's mostly held by banks. So there is just generally a much stronger influence from capital markets, debt and equity in the US that is driving substantially more consolidation. I would say that type of disruption helps to clean up the system and to make companies faster, more agile, ultimately stronger. It's very Darwinian, you know, survival of the fittest in it some is very, sense. Because I feel like the US market's quite a rough place, yeah. but it's also one where you learn to survive. Yeah, but look at look at Aptiv, for instance. Yeah. Right? It's it's an amazing auto tech supplier trading on the highest valuation of, of any sort of aut automotive uh, company out there. And it used to be a business that was sitting within GM, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yeah. And after loops of consolidation. And bankruptcy. And bankruptcy, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the supply chain was created. Now, other things have disappeared or moved into other companies. But I think it's a good example that disruption consolidation isn't always necessarily a bad thing. I think it's actually needed to keep companies fit and agile. There's a counter argument to that as well. A lot of people would say that the US markets, you know, push people towards short termism, whereas if you had just long term shareholders that gave management a really long leash, shouldn't it be that European companies can take much longer term bets that are not going to be profitable, whereas a hedge fund might just stop a US management company from doing that? You're shaking your head. I'm shaking my head because I hear that very often, short termism and pushing me into quarterly actions. A smart management team gets it, right? A smart management team knows how to run the business. They know how to react to short term pressures. They know how to use them sometimes even and internalize some of that pressure. I don't like that excuse at all. I'm a little bit like, you know, diamonds are made under pressure. So put the pressure up and then, you know, executives will run faster. Do you have an example where there was short termism coming from a hedge fund and management slapped back? No, look, there was one situation in Europe where people trying to force Volkswagen and Porsche to merge, right? The Porsche holding company to merge. And fundamentally, Porsche SE, Porsche not SE, Porsche AG, not which Porsche, exactly, not okay. Porsche AG. And fundamentally, from a pure financial argument, you could have lifted a lot of value by eliminating a holding discount, 30% holding discount. But culturally and politically, this just wasn't possible at all because Lower Saxony owns. 20% and a blocking minority in Volkswagen. And no one in Germany was supportive of that merger. So I felt this was something where, you know, the, the, the financial markets rationale versus the industrial and political rationale didn't really meet. Even though the argument was fair, the chance for it to happen was very low. I actually think that US research is in many cases much more focused on the quarter, the next print, the next EPS versus European research, which is much more strategic. Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. Look, at the end of the day, four quarters make a year, right? Eight quarters make two years. So it's to, to keep that pressure up and to, to keep companies, you know, make them accountable, make sure they deliver earnings according to their visibility and they make commitments to it. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So I don't believe that short-termism is necessarily a bad thing unless companies try to create the idea of earnings rather than, you know, sustainable earnings. Well, on the flip side, you mentioned it 
it's taken Daimler a decade to spin out trucks. And in general, conglomerates are less efficient from a capital market perspective than kind of split split out businesses. It didn't take Aptiv, you know, when it was Delphi, that long to, to spin out what they call Delphi technologies. Whereas Conti has been, you know, sitting on its powertrain spin out for quite some time before it finally did it. It was smaller than expected, right? I mean, I think you've got lots of examples of large conglomerates in the German automotive industry that are arguably less efficient as a result of their structures and maybe haven't changed as fast, just from an organizational perspective. That's an interesting point. I believe that companies should also try out more and should dare more change. There's obviously, especially in Germany, this cultural issue of, you know, you can't fail versus the US. I mean, you should fail and you learn and you try again and makes you stronger. Preserving the status quo, even though you know it's less efficient, is a very low-risk strategy, obviously in the short and midterm. But the risk that you just become slow and, and less and less relevant, you lose speed, especially nowadays where speed is obviously you know accelerating because the, the type of tech that's being used is much faster. I think the risk of not changing is getting bigger and bigger for German corporates and conglomerates. That goes back to the multiple compression that you were talking about earlier. Yes, and we've seen a much stronger multiple compression for European automotive stocks than US automotive stocks, right? There, at the beginning of my career, BMW, Daimler, like premium automotive companies used to trade at a premium, right? They used to trade at a premium to GM and Ford. Nowadays, they trade at a discount to GM and Ford, and certainly Toyota. Toyota trades at a discount? Or? No, Toyota mm. trades at a premium. At a premium. Uh, to all other OEMs globally. Got it. The other thing that I find very striking about the way German auto companies are run is that they have a lot of meetings and structures. You mentioned Lower Saxony on the political side. We've got either government or unions, in the case of VW, both part of this game of trying to kind of turn the ship. How does that side of business basically affect how these companies are run? Like, are there too many meetings happening in Europe and not enough getting done? I would say that's probably true for every large-scale organization, and everyone would sign that. And Except Tesla, right? I mean, arguably, like, yeah. the value of Tesla is there's one person who's a dictator who makes all the decisions. There's yeah. no need to have, you know, buy-in or, you know, committee meetings, supervisory board meetings, etc. We should not mix up too many things. I mean, one thing is clear, the bigger a company gets, the more red tape you get, the more speed you lose because you have just more people involved. And I hear that very often from corporates that are saying, look, I'm just running around meeting after meeting. I'm not deciding anything. I'm not doing anything. And people are just hatching their bets and managing their careers. I hear that very, very often from big European organizations. The other thing that's very specific in Germany is the corporate governance. So you, you have supervisory boards that are co-determined. So there are worker representatives and shareholder representatives, usually 10 people on each side. And then the chairman has a double vote. I actually think it's a good thing to have workers representation on the supervisory board because there's a lot of knowledge within the organization that should be used on a supervisory board. Not sure the quality of people on the capital, on the shareholder side, is always as good as it could be. In the case of Volkswagen, it's obviously an issue because you have two politicians sitting on the supervisory board which have a very similar interest 
as the workers' representatives, which is like long-term job preservation in Lower Saxony. And I'm not sure that the risk of those forming a coalition is actually good for the company in the long run, especially for a company that is so global when decisions are just coming down to what's the impact for workers in Lower Saxony. For a company with 650,000 people globally, that's, I think, a challenge. What is the most important thing that could happen to European autos in the next two years? Well, it would be a fallout with China. That, in my eyes, is the biggest risk. If that geopolitical situation worsens further from here, then I think Europe, and in particular Germany, has a real big fundamental problem. So China's a real risk in the near term. I'm assuming Tesla eating up market share, especially on the premium side, is, is another risk. If things were to be, so to speak, turned around to restore premiums to the stocks of German car companies, what would they have done dramatically differently to what they're doing now in order to change that? Because it, it seems like, from what you're saying, they're going in the wrong direction. Well, the industry has learned a huge lesson in supply demand and price elasticity over the last 24 months. Because of a shortage in supply, prices have gone through the roof and mix has improved dramatically. So if the industry can move to a sustainably better position on the supply demand curve and internalize mechanisms to price better, to forecast their volumes better, i.e. to get to better revenue management and to become less volume obsessed, it will become a less cyclical industry as well. And it will become a more valuable industry. And I think that's ultimately the most important thing because pricing power drives valuation in any sector. And the auto industry, including premium, they've given up the pricing power and they've gone for too much growth. And in many areas, they've, they've tried to cover it up by financial services products, leasing and financing deals, which is sort of stretching the risk or the discount over a longer period of time. So claiming that pricing power back and being able to manage the flow of your product in a much, much better way and optimizing your mix. You know, that from a fundamental standpoint is the most important thing. Where there are gaps in innovation, I do believe that they can close many of these gaps. Your point about volume and pricing and the mix, do you think that's a macro situation now, just you've got supply constraints so that companies can objectively price products better? Like, what do you see changing once there's no silicon restrictions, maybe fuel prices go back to normal, like the cost of batteries also normalized or the supply of those things are normalized. What kinds of things will be sustained based on this lesson about pricing? Yeah, firstly, I'm convinced that no company on a standalone basis would have ever run that experiment on price elasticity because they would have been far too worried that someone steps in and grabs their market share. Now, because they've all collectively been forced into this experiment, they've all made the experience that what can happen to their profitability if they sell fewer cars and a richer mix. And these learnings are so important and so fundamental that every company I currently see and speak to spends a lot of time trying to figure out how that can be internalized. The second point is in Europe, the biggest strategy at the moment is to move towards a more direct sales model, the agency model. In that world, the OEM will sell direct to the consumer. The OEM will price direct to the consumer. The OEM has all the data from the consumer 
down to the factory, which in the olden days, you know, you had the dealer in between. So that will enable companies to much better manage the flow of product and the mix. It will help them to forecast their demand much better and manage their pricing. So I do believe that there is a lot of activity to increase the intel, the IP, the capabilities to internalize what this big experiment on pricing and supply demand has been forced on the industry. So I am hopeful and I'm convinced that not all of the, the benefits will be given away as soon as semiconductors will become available again. How does that tie in with what you're doing now? You're not still writing automotive research day to day, right? No, we're sitting here in London, in, in Mayfair, in our, you know, Quantco office. You know, Quantco is a data science and software company that helps companies to turn data into value. So we define fundamental use cases where we can help companies to use data to substantially improve their fundamental performance. And in the auto industry, and that's what excited me, the whole revenue management is a huge area of change and where data can be analyzed in a much smarter way and where software can then be used to implement and scale these solutions. So that fascinates me because with a two trillion top line of global autos and companies with 100, 200 billion revenues, small changes in your revenue performance have major implications on earnings and cash flow. So as an analyst, having focused so much in this area and then finding a company that is very strong in that field, in that economic discipline, really, with the foundation in Harvard and Stanford and hiring a lot of really very, very smart data scientists, engineers, really top caliber young people and bringing them together and operating in, in areas, you know, in the insurance space, in claims, in healthcare, in tech, and bringing that knowledge to the automotive discussion fascinates me. In some sense, cars are commodities, right? They get you from one place to another. But in another sense, they're luxury goods, especially German car makers are, are kind of known for premium vehicles. You yourself, I think, have a passion for cars. How do you think about the balance between, you know, mobility as a, f a functional thing versus as a as a passion and maybe how that ties into the way vehicles are priced or could be priced? Look, very clearly, the car is a very personal place. And whether it's a little Fiat 500 or a BMW X5, in most cases, people have a relationship to that asset. Even though they don't use it very often, when it is relevant, it's actually very relevant. And you want it to be clean, right? You want it to be your space in a way. So if you take it away from people, they react very negatively. And as we've seen during the pandemic, if this becomes your means of transportation and it gives you the ability to, to go somewhere on the weekend, to, to commute to work or go on a holiday, it's actually very, very relevant. And people have learned that. So I think it's a very important part of people's life and society. And in emerging markets, it's a game changer for people's life. If they can afford a car and suddenly you know, approach different jobs, it's actually very important. I often find this argument that, oh yeah, no one cares, people don't want to drive again, and no one cares about a car, I would fundamentally strongly object that assessment. It very often comes from, you know, some people sitting in an office tower in a mega city and looking at their spreadsheets. But in, in real life, it's actually very, very different. I would say that there's an obsession with growth in, in many 
and there has been an obsession with growth and selling, just selling more cars and moving into smaller segments and sacrificing some of your profitability just to grow, make yourself more accessible as a brand by offering, you know, lower leasing deals and financing deals. I, th I think companies need to just manage their brands more carefully and be a bit more respectful of their brands and just sell one, pro one product less than two too many and to protect their brand equity and to keep the excitement up instead of just building another plant to produce another small car, even though you know you can't make money in that area. But the reason you think that rolling out a bunch of niche vehicles hurts profitability is just because a low volume product that you have to build a factory for, you're just going to make less money on each car. The opposite has happened in consumer electronics. With Apple, for example, they only have a few products, but everyone kind of has gravitated towards a very narrow range of products. And what you're suggesting is that brands in the automotive space understand their niche and they serve their niche kind of loyally and not start exploring beyond that. Why do you think cars are so different than take the iPhone, where one or two narrow product lines can really serve everyone and do so at a high degree of profitability? I think Tesla is another example where a much narrower range of products is trying to be applicable to everyone. Yeah, and Toyota runs a fairly similar approach, right? A global industrialized product that works very, very well and doesn't let you down and is pretty clean. It's a very rational product, a Prius. I think the Germans in particular have just become overly engineering focused and they've allowed themselves to grow into every possible niche and sub-niche with, you know, millions of options and option combinations and this massive complexity that no one can manage anymore. Simply because there was always an argument, we can sell another car if we offer another derivative of a derivative with 50 different options. So it's like the, the fancy wood paneling, but that adds cost and complexity, you're saying? Well, the yeah. wood paneling is, is fine, I assume, but it's combining the wood paneling with five different sound system and 15 different electronic features. And also on the models, I mean, you used to have BMW 3 Series, 5 Series, 7 Series, and now I think you've got all the numbers in between filled out, right? Well, exactly. And then um, you have the X in front of them, and sometimes you have the I in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what people, companies also look at. You know, what is, how much money do we make with the core product? And how much money do we really make with everything on the edge? And I would personally say, take out some of the more boring, edgy product. Take that out. Save a lot of money to, by reducing your complexity. And spend that money, maybe? on some lighthouse products that are actually cool, that are super exciting, that tell a story about your brand, that might cost quite a bit of money, but they're so important to develop the brand further. One last angle worth dipping into on that front. One kind of lighthouse product has been racing vehicles, right? BMW tried to go into Formula One, wasn't successful. Mercedes has been there for a long time and has been quite successful. And I think it breaks it out on its quarterly reporting how much it spends basically as a return on marketing investment through its Formula One kind of enterprise. What do you think about racing? We're in the UK, partly for Festival of Speed, which is a racing event. So I know you've got like a little bit of a connection here. So curious to, to hear your views. Well, firstly, I, I love racing old Porsches. So, you know, it's a totally subjective answer to your question. I honestly believe that you need to excite your consumers. And I think Formula One for certain brands 
is a very good way. And it also sits so deep in many of these brands' DNA, right? DNA of Ferrari is so much linked to racing. And I would say Porsche definitely as well. So why taking that away? Why not developing that further? I mean, the success of the Netflix series, it tells you how even people that have nothing to do with cars and would normally not watch a Formula One race are suddenly glued to their TV because they want to get to the next series. So, look, there is a huge fascination with getting around a track in a very fast way and all the drama linked to it. So I personally believe it's a fantastic marketing tool. Does it drive innovation? Maybe it does a little bit, but it's it's more about brand building. You, you said it's it's completely subjective that you like racing old Porsches, but I feel like those are the kinds of things that create affiliation with something. So curious, like what kind of racing with old Porsches you do and what you've done in the past. I own two old 911s from 1968. And with one of them, it's a 1968 TR that raced at Le Mans with French drivers in 69, 70 and 71. So we've restored that car to its original racing. We've taken it back to race the Le Mans Classic, which is an amazing event. It's very fast. It's the big circuit. It goes for a whole weekend. I have a huge passion for that. You do the driving yourself? No, okay. no, of course. I drive it at Le Mans myself, okay. but I wouldn't call myself a brilliant driver. I think Carlos Tavares uh, is a better driver than I am, certainly. You've raced Carlos? <laughs> we were in the same race. Um, I think he spun. He had an accident. So maybe he's not races. that much better than you. Well, he's, he's, he raced the Lola, a GM Lola, but which is a in, much faster car than my 911. What in the Stellantis portfolio would be submitted into these types of things today? The cars almost all have to have a history of having raced okay. at Le Mans. So it's very difficult to get a car accepted into the race. And what's really fascinating is we combine different cars from different years into a grid. And so you race Le Mans with cars with prototypes or real racing cars and then sort of slow cars like a 911 and that makes the race very very special because even you know in the early 70s there were cars that went you know 400 kilometers per hour on the straight so yeah it's fun are you going to be at festival of speed this weekend i can't come to festival of speed i would love to go i'm very jealous you guys are going and i and i'm i've heard you're even going to the to the ball which is a really fun i'm, fun I'm looking for a top hat i don't think i need the monocle but i can <laughs> yeah but, but we're in mayfair you can just walk outside several row and you get your top hat funny how that works this has been a great conversation and we'll see you on the racetrack someday i'm sure thank you very much thanks guys enjoy yeah. it